Hello all, greetings once again to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. It's one man, it's occasionally his cat as well, coming to you from a spare room in deepest, darkest North Wales, delivering to your ears the tales of true crime that you may not be familiar with, some you may not even believe, that are searched and sourced from all corners of the UK and Ireland. I'm Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. It's wonderful having you kind folk join me here once again as ever. And I do hope that as I'm coming to you, then you and yours are all good and you're all well. So I'm back with you this time with another listener episode of the show. They're always amongst some of my favourites to do here because they always seem to feature subjects that I'll hear of when the listener gets in touch and suggests. And I think, how ace is that? Why didn't I think of that? Or sometimes they even form the seed of an idea for a future episode or episodes of the show as well. Part of the research and for this one has done just that. It's given me an idea for one that I'll save for a later date. I'm even toying with it being the focus of the next Patreon episode. Dolphin smooth intro into me more traditional thanks there. Of course, big thanks are heading out this time around to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs for Simon Peacock, Campbell Welsh, Christopher B, Michael Beckhurst, Micah Solinus, Chantel Wilson, Patreon themselves, and Winter Cara May, Jackie Smith, Alexandra Wood, and Josie Miller, who've opted to become annual supporters of the show. You're an awesome lot, you guys, aren't you? Cheers so much for doing so all. Now you too can join these kind folks should you want access to some 20 unreleased bonus episodes of the show, including The Murder of Janie Shepherd, The Beauty in the Bikini, Angel from Hell or Horrors Over the Holidays, with a new bonus episode released monthly. Now quicker and easier to do than losing the will to live waiting for the US election results to be counted, because what a right shower of old cock that was, eh? You can be hearing these and more for less than four groats and a ferret's egg each month. Or, you can now annually support the show at a discount and get these and perhaps something from me also just by heading over to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on Patreon. It's got the same show logo and all that. Or by using the link provided in the contact details of every episode show notes. It'd be wonderful to see you guys there. Whilst you're in the episode show notes, perhaps you want some tickets for next year's Crime Con also. It's coming to London in June of next year and alongside all sorts of high-profile guests from the world of true crime and several hosts of international and homegrown shows. I'll be taking part in in attendance for the weekend also. Now it promises to be a great and immersing weekend with absolutely loads going on and I'd love catching up with some of you guys there to say hi. Perhaps we can even have a beer afterwards. There are early bird tickets available and thanks to the hosts, If you wish to get yourself to the event, then by using the unique code ENTHUSIAST, you can do so at 10% off at the order page. Plus, as an aside from me, if you let me know that you've done so, I'll make sure there's a TTCE goodie bag there for you too, as a thank you. So we've got a listener-created episode this time around on the show. As I said before, which I always love hosting, and this one comes from longtime listener KD Walsh up there in Yorkshire. Now, KD contacted me offering to write and research a piece, and when the subject she had in mind was mentioned, it was one that I thought, oh, yeah, it could be a good one, that. So I received it from her once done, and I thought it was great. 
and not only does her research and writing form the episode today, that I've added to very little and only adapted to suit my own narrative style, but the original piece she sent has also given me food for thought for another future tale, and so will form part of that when I come to do it. So my deepest thanks go out to Katie for her work. I'm always open to anybody wishing to research and write up a tale that you would think would make for a good show episode. If you've got a burning one to yourself that you think makes a good fit for the type that we cover here on The Enthusiast. Perhaps it's a personal one to you, one that's from where you know or live, or one that's just always held your interest. I'm sure you know that the type we look for now, so please get in touch to suggest if you've got one. I'll always respond back to you. So the tale that forms up this episode is a bit of a different spin on things than normal here on the show, but I believe it's always good to look at and try something different. Plus it's not something, and quite surprisingly this I thought, that I've found covered before on a podcast. Maybe it has been, I just didn't find it if it has. And I found this a fascinating look at something that I have to admit I hadn't ever really looked that into more than face value. It's a bit of a thought-provoking one as well and I'm hoping that you guys feel the same. The episode contains details and descriptions of events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast, and this time around KD, as we look at a tale entitled Death in the Family. The sentence of this court is that you will be taken from here to the place in which you were last confined, and there be kept in close confinement until your date of execution, when upon that day that you be taken to the place of execution, and there hanged by the neck until you are dead, and thereafter your body buried within the precincts of the prison. And may God have mercy upon your soul. Imagine how hearing that, or words to that effect, because the terminology has been codified over time, must feel. I understand that everyone has different views concerning capital punishment. It stirs debate this one does, because you have monsters such as Huntley and Thompson and Venables or Sutcliffe, whose crimes are so reviled and speak so much for themselves that I only need to use the surname and you know exactly what I'm on about. And it's easy to think, hell can't take you fast enough, and you should have faced the noose. Yet you have to remember there are several notable miscarriages of justice throughout British criminal history that are so familiar, they're almost household names. And even with today's advanced standards of forensics and technology available, there is still room for mistakes to be made. But if you've been a victim of crime, as I, and I'm sure many of you guys have also, then you also understand what punishment and justice should mean, the potential and value that, when it's enacted, it can have towards attempting to heal the repercussions for the victims left behind to pick up the pieces remaining from a crime, for these most definitely don't just stop with a victim, they can ripple through a family and friends, they can even affect those investigating also. Perhaps people so affected may feel that a prison sentence for the guilty party may never feel like justice to them, so they can never really repair, and the solution they wish more than anything to come into fruition is the death of that person responsible. 
Now it's a debate we could have countlessly and timelessly because there's much to consider with it and my own stance is that for the likes of Sutcliffe and Huntley, the monsters we've met here on the show and others who need no introduction, that death is too good for them and they instead should live each second of their life sentences in mortal fear of retribution, not knowing if and when it would come. I think that's much more apt. I also think back to the miscarriages of justice referred to a moment ago when I think about it, and it's something that if it's gotten wrong, then it really is too late, and no amends or compensation can be made. You can't bring the person back, can you? Unless you're the big guy from the Green Mile, of course, when you could have a go at least, couldn't you? Now it's been 55 years to the very day that I write this, the 9th of November 1965, since capital punishment was effectively abolished within the UK, as it was that day that the murder, abolition of the Death Penalty Act 1965 came into effect, and the death penalty for crimes was replaced with a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment. The last executions in the UK to have taken place the previous year and you never know what may pop up as a tale here on the show in the future, is all I can say there. The Act suspended the death penalty for murder for five years in the United Kingdom, and on the 16th of December 1969, a majority vote of 158 in the House of Commons decreed that capital punishment for murder should be abolished. Even after this, however, the death penalty theoretically survived for treason, piracy with violence, arson in a royal dockyard, and certain crimes under the jurisdiction of the armed forces. But with the ratification of the Sixth Protocol of the European Convention on Human Rights on the 20th of May 1999, all provisions for the death penalty were finally abolished in the United Kingdom. Up to that point, since Joe Biden was a youngster, Capital punishment in the UK had always been in force for all manner of things and in all sorts of inventive, horrendous sounding ways. Draconian, but some of which still take place in other countries. At its height in the 19th century, there were some 220 crimes that were punishable by death, capital crimes in UK law, including random nonsense ranging from damaging Westminster Bridge and wearing a disguise to commit a crime, the impersonation of a Chelsea pensioner, right through to, I quote, being in the company of gypsies for one month. There was also no distinguishment between adults and children either, as strong evidence of malice in a child of 7 to 14 years of age was also a capital offence. Now whilst executions for murder, burglary and robbery were common, the death sentences for minor offences were often not carried out, and from the 1820s the number of capital crimes began to be rapidly reduced until they were down to 16 by 1837. Perhaps by then you could do what you wanted to Westminster Bridge, and you hang around with gypsies for as long as you want, who knows. By 1861 this number had been reduced again to just four by the Criminal Law Consolidation Act, these being the capital crimes of murder, arson in a royal dockyard, high treason and piracy with violence. Post-1837 just five people were put to death for a crime other than murder and that was being convicted of attempted murder and in reality all executions from September 1861 were for the crime of murder except in times of war. 
Now this situation continued until 1957 when the Homicide Act of that year divided murder into two offences, capital and non-capital. And if you think of capital punishment in the UK, there's one method for carrying it out that springs to mind, what was for many years, right up until its abolition, the chosen method. Hanging. And not the mostly enacted type like that bloody wingnut Jeffrey Jones, who we met in the previous episode, did either. Now, no matter what your thoughts on the issues of hanging are, one thing is for certain, the death that takes place at the hangman's hands is quite unique, because for all the crimes of murder that are committed to get someone to the noose, it all ends the same in death. But for the criminal being hung, he or she are the ones that experience the unique part, to walk the exact final steps others did before them to feel the darkness of the hood falling upon the face and all air slowly dissipating, the dampness of the darkness becoming thicker with every panting breath you take, the feeling of knowing this darkness is the last thing that you would see, the weight of the noose being placed around the neck and the feeling of it being tightened under the jaw, the floor disappearing beneath their feet, the uniqueness in knowing that was coming unlike the many victims of the men and women that met their fate at the gallows. Up to May 1968, all hangings were carried out in public and attracted large crowds who were at least supposed to be deterred by the spectacle, but who more probably went for the morbid excitement and the carnival atmosphere that usually surrounded such events. Now, a great stat here is that this is where the well-known expression Gala Day derives from, the Anglo-Saxon Gallows Day. Gallows Day. Still a safer day out than going to Alton Towers, I suppose. Most common for many years was the short drop method of hanging, which was performed by placing the condemned prisoner on a raised support, such as a stool, a ladder or a cart, with a noose around the neck. The support was then moved away, leaving the person then suspended by the neck, their weight tightening the noose and effecting strangulation, followed by death, a method that could take around 10 to 20 minutes. Not exactly a quick death, that is it. Now a variant of this method was the Austro-Hungarian pole method called Wurgegelen, which literally translates to strangling gallows, and required a special pole or pillar around 3 metres tall. A rope was then attached around the prisoner's feet and run through a pulley at the base of the pole before the condemned was then hoisted to the top of the pole by means of a sling running across the chest and underneath the armpits. A narrow diameter noose was looped around the prisoner's neck and secured to a hook mounted at the top of the pole before, with the chest sling released, the prisoner was rapidly jerked downward by an assistant executioner via the foot rope. The executioner would be standing on a stepped platform around a metre high beside the condemned and would guide the head downward with his hands simultaneous to the efforts of his assistant. In some countries, the executioner would then manually dislocate the neck. Now that sounds as horrendous as described if you picture it, doesn't it? The method that came into use from 1866 was what is known as the standard drop method involving a drop of between four to six feet. Now this was intended to be more humane compared to the short drop, because this method was intended to be enough to break the person's neck, causing immediate unconsciousness 
and rapid brain death. And this was followed by the introduction in 1872 of the long drop, also known as a measured drop. To avoid what was known as a Goodale mess, named after the execution of a man called Goodale, at which his head was jerked right off his body, physical characteristics such as height, weight, and even the age of the condemned were now taken into account and the rope was measured, so instead of everyone falling the same standard drop, this could determine how much slack would be provided in the rope, so the distance drop would break the neck. Now of course, someone needs to sort all of this out in an official capacity, and for many years the official executioner was a salaried government employee, but with the ratification of capital crimes in the 19th century meaning that there was less capacity for them to be retained like this, they'd have less to do and would be left hanging about, if you pardon the pun. This brought a new prominence to the role of the official executioner. They were still required to be available to carry out these executions when required, but there was hardly enough of a steady stream of work to make them salaried employees. So instead, therefore, in 1884 they became independent contractors. The official power to carry out the punishment was granted to the sheriff of a county, along with the ability to invite someone off a home office maintained list who could be invited to be deputised to carry it out for him. It wasn't a particularly lucrative career, earning the executioner just £10 per execution, a sum that remained static throughout the 19th century, only being eventually raised to £15 in the 1940s, with half this sum paid at the time, and the remaining half two weeks later, provided the hangman had shown appropriate discretion. And there was fierce competition to get onto this list. The process of becoming an approved name on the list was for a long time shrouded in secrecy, but the job was not as simple as merely having a strong stomach and the strength to pull a lever when it mattered, like Homer Simpson when he deliberately made himself a beast to work from home, my absolute favourite Simpsons episode ever that one. By the 20th century there were rules, ethics and codes of being an executioner. Not only did candidates need skill under pressure, they also had to be judged psychologically sound to do the role and were selected largely through informal approaches, sometimes because of their experience as an executioner in the forces. In almost all cases, men who were judged competent to carry out the duties were in stable and often dull jobs, living happily married, settled lives. But the motivation of some candidates applying to do so was, however, questionable. Several were blacklisted after it was discovered that they'd been telling all and sundry what they'd applied for, and even showing off the interview letter that they'd had in pubs, and so a key test for eligibility became trustworthiness and discretion, the golden rules of how Britain intended executioners to conduct themselves. If candidates pass police checks, along with a medical examination to ensure their capability in the role, they were then invited to an interview with prison governors to ascertain their eligibility and state of mind. The final stage of selection, after receiving successful recommendation following this, was six days of technical training at London's Pentonville Prison, where governors judged whether or not they were competent. If they were deemed so, the new additions to the official list of executioners were told that they would be contacted if needed, 
with any offering to carry out a specific execution being struck off the list immediately, as beyond the clinical guidelines of how to efficiently hang a prisoner, the critical element was the conduct of the hangman himself. It was often also a family affair as well, with the profession of executioner running through generations of a family, and it's here where I introduce the UK's most notable dynasty of these, a family that between just three of them, combined, have taken more lives than any known serial killer. The exact number cannot be ascertained, but it is estimated to be upwards of 800 people. In the UK, they are arguably the profession's most notable name, the Pierpoint family, whom we shall meet following a short word from the show's sponsors, BetterHelp. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, 2020 has been a challenging year for us all, to say the least, and many of us out there are finding things difficult. Personally, I found it hard being separated from those closest to me and ensuring that I'm there for them as best I can be, striking that good balance in my work life, personal life, and even my podcasting role to do so does take a bit of a toll. So whatever it is that's interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals, that's where better help comes in. Just to clarify, it isn't self-help. What BetterHelp does is assesses the issues you may be facing and matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist for professional counselling. It has a broad range of expertise that's available, some of which may not be locally available to you. And with specialists in a vast range of issues, from things like self-esteem troubles to sleeping problems, in less than 24 hours you can start communicating with a counsellor in a confidential, safe and private online environment, all without that uncomfortableness that goes with sitting around in a waiting room, because nobody likes that, do they? The service is much more affordable than traditional offline counselling, with financial aid even available for the service if it's needed. It's available for clients worldwide, and once you start communicating, you'll get thoughtful and timely responses from your counsellor, Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with them. You can message them anytime. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. So the first member of the family in this line of business we'll meet is Henry Pierpoint. Pictures of Henry from the early 20th century show a foreboding looking man, standing tall with a very stern manner about him, one whose presence would demand attention, in the style of the time, you know, a tash that would make Magnum P.I. be proud, full-on pipe to boot, dressed in a black three-piece suit, bowler hat, pocket watch across his sternum, someone who'd fit in perfectly as one of the Shelby gang in Peaky Blinders. Fantastic show, can't wait for it to come back on. He'd been born the fourth child and second son of Thomas and Anne Pierpoint on November the 30th, 1877, in the small village of normanton on saw in Nottinghamshire. Though the family had by 1891 moved to Clayton near the city of Bradford in West Yorkshire, 
and by age 13 Henry was working in a worsted mill there. It wasn't a profession he enjoyed, so it was arranged by his father for him to work in a butcher's shop in Bradford, where he stayed for a couple of years, before at 18 uprooting again and moving to Manchester to be with his sister Mary, who at the time was working as a manager in a cabinets firm. Whilst working as a cabinet maker, he met a local girl named Mary Buxton, whom Henry began courting and would later go on to marry on Boxing Day 1898 at St Anne's Church in Manchester's Newton Heath. Now Henry had aspirations other than a career as a mill worker or a cabinet maker, and it was a magazine article that he read at the turn of the century on executions, the hangman system and chief executioner James Billington that showed him a prospective path to respectability. To him, becoming a hangman was a means to an end and a way to raise his position in society, so he decided to apply, and a letter dated February 11th, 1901 reads, Dear Sir, I wish to inform you that I should be very thankful if you would accept me as one of the public executioners, should at any time Mr Billington's term expires, as I've always had a desire for that appointment. I'm 24 years of age, height 5 feet 8 and a half inches. Should you require particulars of my character, I shall be very glad to give you all the information you require. Hoping the application will be of no offence, I am yours, respectfully, Henry Albert Pierpoint, number 53 Fielden Street, off Oldham Road, Manchester. Now apparently, that was all that was needed. No CV or long-winded interview bollocks back then. And later that year, he was informed that he'd passed requirements, went for his training, and was accepted onto the list. In November 1901, he participated in his first hanging as an assistant to James Billington, an experienced hangman, and the first to see the role as a family trade. Out of seven names on the Home Office list at the time, Three of them were Billingtons. James's brother William and John were also appointed executioners, and three of James's sons were eventually also to follow their father into the profession. James died soon after Henry Pierpoint began work, as did one of his sons. I don't think he was overzealous and hung them, but Henry acted as an assistant to the two surviving Billington brothers for the next few years before in 1905 himself becoming the principal executioner of Britain and carrying out all eight of the hangings in the country that year. Now from 1901, in the nine years Henry spent in the business, he carried out executions on 105 people. Now I'll probably keep saying this, but can you imagine the toll that would take on a person, 105 people? It had begun to on Henry after a few years, and he turned to drink. His career came to an abrupt end when, in 1910, Henry had arrived at Chelmsford Prison the night before the execution of prisoner Frederick Foreman, described as being considerably worse for drink, and had an altercation with his assistant executioner, John Ellis. An extract from a scathing letter that Ellis wrote to the Home Office following the incident was as follows. Whilst I was booking them down, he commenced using the most disgusting language it has ever been my lot to hear. I will not repeat it as it is not fit to be said, heard or spoken. Then he threatened what he would do for me, made a rush at me, but the chief warder and gatekeeper intervened and talked to him 
and he appeared to quieten down. The duties caused them to leave the room, and as soon as they had gone, he rushed at me and knocked me off the chair I was sat on. I got up, but was again knocked off, and he was going for me again when Warder Nash, who had heard the noise, came in and attempted to stop him, but failed, so the blow caught me behind the ear. In all, he struck me four blows, which have caused me a lot of pain and are still troubling me, so the chief said I had better go to my room, which I was very pleased to do. He is the first person that has ever assaulted me in all my life, as I have never been a fighting man myself. The report which came from the prison warder Nash stated that, After a few minutes in the gate lodge, Pierpoint's conduct was very bad and the assistant, John Ellis, he called him an Irish bastard and struck him with his fist, threw off his coat wanting to fight and gave me trouble by having to keep him off Ellis. Henry was immediately struck off the list of official executioners by none other than the Home Secretary of the time, Winston Churchill, who sent a confidential circular to all sheriffs in the country telling them that Pierpoint's name had been removed from the list of executioners and made little hesitation in confirming the decision of the prison commissioners. Make certain this fellow is never employed again. And he never was as an executioner going back to work solely in the Huddersfield Gas Works. Now bitter about this, and by the summer of 1922, a terminally ill man who thought he had nothing to lose, Reynolds News had published a series of Henry's memoirs entitled Ten Years as a Hangman, My Life Story as Public Executioner, in which he wrote, Now that no bonds of secrecy are released through relinquishing my post as public executioner, I now take up my pen to write the details of my executions and travels as an executioner. The last paragraph of Henry's memoir perhaps gives good insight into how he saw his duties, writing, Now, as I lay my pen aside after recounting my memoirs, I ask myself, what did I think of my past as an executioner? Well, in the first place, I was very ambitious for the duty. I also loved my work on the scaffold, but my mind was fixed on my duties. It was my whole desire to become an expert official, which I did through my own energies. Now, had my time come back again, I should rather settle into some civil business, which is not only more pleasant, but is looked upon with more respect. Now I've told the truth in all my series, which cannot be denied, I close with the hope that I may spend the future in quiet and peaceful ending. Henry died of a terminal illness he'd been suffering with for several years, a broken man blighted by alcoholism at the relatively early age of 44 on the 14th of December 1922. But that's not the cessation of the Pierpoint name in the executioner's story by a long shot. Perhaps inspired by the Billingtons, after being appointed, Henry had begun suggesting to his older brother Thomas that he should also apply to be on the list, reportedly demonstrating the work to him with the use of a rope affixed to a bag of grain in a barn. So while most brothers are having a kick about, or go off fishing or hunting together, these two are faffing about in a barn, learning the perfection of knots and different size rope ratio to successfully hang a sack of corn. Amazing that this was a pastime for a family, isn't it? 
Swayed by this, Thomas applied in 1906 and he himself was accepted to the Home Office list in 1907, becoming a more prominent executioner than his younger brother. In a career lasting some 39 years on the list, longer than anyone else in its history, and with Thomas not retiring until he was in his mid-70s, it's thought that he partook in an estimated 294 hangings, 203 of those being prisoners executed in England and Wales, and the rest being military personnel and executions carried out abroad. In addition to his work for the Home Office, he received several outside appointments. He was the official executioner for the Irish Free State after it was established in 1922, and he was also an official executioner for the US military in Europe, and during World War II he hanged 16 US servicemen at their base in Shepton Mallet. Aside from murder, some were executed for rape, which was a capital offence under US military law at the time. Thomas Pierpoint was still working well into his fourth decade as an executioner, when his health, fitness and temperament began to be called into question, and it was wondered by many if he was still suitably fit for the role. A letter to the Prison Commission dated 11th of November 1942, from the Governor of Wandsworth Prison, reads, At the execution of a recent prisoner on the 6th of November 1942, I was not favourably impressed by the attitude of T.W. Pierpoint, the executioner. The execution was carried out with expedition and satisfactorily performed. I have the greatest admiration for the way in which the minister prepared the prisoner for his end, and the comfort the latter receives from the former enables him, in average cases, to meet his end with admirable decorum. But if the end of the minister's influence over the prisoner is brought to a close too abruptly, a more unhappy scene is witnessed than, in my opinion, is necessary. I formed the opinion that Mr. Pierpoint, at his advanced age, I believe his age is 72 years, has passed his peak of efficiency and is becoming less tactful and more abrupt in his methods. It impressed me as though he had turned what I would call an unpleasant episode of drastic efficiency into a more unpleasant one. B.E.N. Grew, Governor. Thomas was to never officially retire as an executioner, but rather on the basis of the aforementioned letter, the notifications inviting him to conduct executions deliberately dwindled until they ceased altogether. Following this, unlike his younger brother, he remained taciturn about his role as a public executioner and died at his daughter's home in Bradford on the 11th of February 1954, aged 83. So the Pierpoint brothers between them had put more than 400 men and women to death, but they were surpassed themselves by the more and most famous Pierpoint to carry out the role of official executioner, Henry's son and Thomas's nephew, Albert. Albert Pierpoint was born the 30th of March 1905 in Clayton, the son of Henry Pierpoint and Mary Buxton. In comparison to his father and his uncle Tom, the pictures that were available of him show an often smiling man with much softer facial features. Bow-tied and bowler-hatted, you'd imagine him as being perhaps some sort of piano teacher or something. Yet from a young age, Albert seemingly had his chosen profession in mind. 
Attending Beaumont Street School in Huddersfield at age 11, where the family had moved to following Henry being struck from the official list, Albert's teacher had told the class to write an essay about what they want to be when they're older. He was to explain years later. The thought that came into my head is, when I leave school, I should like to be the official executioner. He sat down and wrote in class. When I leave school, I should like to be public executioner like my dad is, because it needs a steady man with good hands like my dad and my uncle Tom, and I shall be the same. I don't know if a gold star was forthcoming for that. Probably a bit more like a see me written across it. Chilling little bastard, isn't it? Imagine I in that. Spending a lot of time throughout his childhood at his Uncle Tom and Aunt Lizzie's house, with whom Albert had a very strong bond, whereas Thomas was more reserved and didn't really talk about business much, or perhaps he had more honour for the secret act that he himself had signed when becoming an executioner, his aunt was known to talk openly about the line of work his father and Thomas did, capturing the young boy's imagination. When Henry died, Albert, being the eldest child, had inherited his papers and diary, and meticulously going over each and every page, immersed himself in it, teaching himself the tricks of the trade, perhaps starting to idolise the only bit of his father he had left, and romanticising with the ideals that Henry had written. However, upon leaving school at age 12, Albert began working in a Manchester cotton mill in Failsworth, where he stayed until the 1920s before becoming a wholesale grocer, at first delivering goods on horseback. He was to work in this profession for many years, and by the 1930s had progressed to doing his rounds driving a car or a truck. So people's eggs were all intact upon delivery following this, I'm sure. By the 1930s also, his lifelong ambition to follow in his father and uncle's footsteps had come to fruition as well. In April 1931, at age 26, and without his family or his uncle's knowledge, Albert had penned the following letter to the Home Secretary. Dear Sir, I beg to offer you my services as an assistant executioner to my uncle T.W.P. appoint at any time he or any other retire from their position. My age is 26 and I am strong in health and build. During the last few years I have thoroughly studied out the carrying out of an execution and the calculating of drops etc. Learned from the diary of my late father, Mr. H.A. Pierpoint. Hoping this letter will meet your kind approval, I am, dear sir, your obedient servant, Albert Pierpoint, 41 Mill Street, Failsworth, Manchester. Within days he'd received a reply and he was on the envelope like Charlie Bucket on a Wonka bar, only to read in the letter that there were no vacancies open at the time. But in the spring of 1932, Albert's mother Mary had received a letter addressed to Albert stamped on Her Majesty's service. Mary had known exactly what this letter meant because she was used to seeing the same letters when Henry was executioner and watching Albert obsess over the diary and papers his father had left behind, it was always a concern for Mary that Albert would become an executioner also. She'd never been too keen on her eldest son stepping into the family business, but by that time Albert was 26 years old, and she could do no more than say she disapproved and accept that this was Albert's choice. 
His letter of application had been reconsidered and he was invited for the aforementioned training at Pentonville Prison before receiving his formal acceptance letter as an assistant executioner at the end of September 1932. Jubilantly, Albert wrote back to the prison commissioners. Dear Sir, I am in receipt of your letter of the 30th. I am very pleased to hear that I am being placed on the list to act at executions. I have read the rules carefully and try my utmost to carry them out. I am, sir, your faithful servant, Albert Pierpoint. It was in December 1932 that Albert participated in his first execution, the hanging of Patrick McDermott, a young Irish farmer who'd murdered his brother. Tom was free to select his own assistant as it was a judicial hanging outside Britain and took Albert with him to travel to Dublin's Mountjoy Prison on Thursday the 29th of December 1932. The execution was scheduled for 8am and took less than a minute to perform, with Albert's job as assistant being to follow McDermott onto the scaffold, bind his legs together, then step back off the trapdoor before his uncle sprung the mechanism. He recalled the execution in his memoirs years later. My uncle stood relaxed, sucking a sweet, with the arm pinion in his hand. I never saw him otherwise at any execution, very calm, with a sweet in his mouth, the white cap folded neatly in his breast pocket and the strap in his hand. I noticed that a priest was there and saw little else. I followed my uncle the short distance to the scaffold, strapped the condemned man's legs, moved back and had hardly time to get my balance, let alone look up when there was a bang and then a space of complete silence. The traps were open, the rope was straight and motionless, the man was dead. Once the execution was complete and death was confirmed, McDermott's body was then left to hang for an hour. As was custom, a bottle of whiskey appeared and glasses were offered to all who'd been present at the execution and whilst others had taken the drink, Thomas answered for the both of them and declined the whiskey, warning Albert against drinking while on official duties. Perhaps seeing what drink had done to Henry's career, he wanted to caution Albert about it before it could even start and was later to give Albert the advice which he adhered to throughout his career. If you can't do it without whiskey, then don't do it at all. By July 1940, Albert had assisted in dozens of executions and by that time had gained an expert and experienced knowledge of the equipment, procedures and regulations required for judicial hanging, as well as being well versed in the home office table of drops. Now the mark of a good executioner is, amongst other things, that they properly size the noose and rope according to the prisoner's body so as to ensure a quick humane death by breaking the neck. Too long a rope on the longer fall can end with such force that the prisoner is decapitated. Too short a rope and the shorter fall can end with so little force that the neck doesn't break and the prisoner slowly strangles to death. So in 1888 the table of drops was first published by the Home Office as a guide to the length of rope to be used based on a prisoner's height, weight and build to ensure that the neck was broken in what was known as the hangman's fracture. Now this is the colloquial name given to a fracture of both pedicles or pars interarticulars of the axis vertebrae 
caused by forcible hyperextension of the head impacting high force which extends the neck and great axial load onto the C2 vertebrae. Today, the most common scenarios for it are falls, usually in elderly adults, motor accidents where a driver or passenger strikes the dashboard or windscreen at the force of impact, or diving injuries and collisions between players in contact sports. So when a person was hanged, the chin would impact upon the noose placed beneath and the person's body weight forced this hyperextension. Boom, hangman's fracture. Yet despite its long association with judicial hangings, studies of those hanged showed that only a small minority produced a perfect hangman's fracture. Morbid Anatomy 101 with a True Crime Enthusiast In 1941, Albert performed his first execution as lead hangman, the execution of Antonio Babe Mancini a notorious 39-year-old East End gangster who'd stabbed a man to death in a Soho billiard room and claiming self-defence had expected to get a verdict of manslaughter. Not happening, mate. Thomas Pierpoint was asked to carry out the execution but was unavailable, and so it at last fell to Albert to be the lever-puller after nine years as an assistant. Now it's worth here describing the procedures of this execution because this would become the blueprint for all of Pierpoint's hangings. Albert was to be assisted by Stephen Wade, and the night before the execution, the two travelled to Pentonville Prison, where they reported to the governor and were given the condemned man's details. They were then escorted to the prison execution chamber, where a long wooden box containing the necessary equipment had been delivered, and which they would open to examine its contents. White Hood feet and wrist straps, and two 10 feet lengths of rope. Two were always supplied, a brand new rope supplied by John Edgington and Sons, the home office suppliers from the old Kent Road, and another which had been used several times before. Now most executioners tended to choose the older rope, as it was tried and tested, and there was much less stretch in it, making it easier to achieve the desired drop. Each rope was then meticulously inspected inch by inch from where it was to be attached to the chain at the top right along to the noose itself where particular attention was paid to the leather clad twine that passed through the brass eyelet that was woven into the hemp. Once satisfied and having consulted his knowledge of the table of drops to estimate the drop required for the following day a sandbag matching the weight of the prisoner would be attached and a test drop made in the presence of the prison governor, with the bag being left in place on the rope overnight to ensure the rope was stretched and so it could be readjusted in the morning if necessary. They then went to view the prisoner through a peephole known as a Judas hole in the door of the condemned cell and the length of drop was refined again now based on observation of the prisoner themselves. The assistant role would then be repeated several times based upon experience before both would retire until the following morning. At 6.30am the next morning, they would be roused and make their way back to the gallows where the sandbag would be drawn up and detached from the noose. The trapdoors would be closed and the lever that operated them secured with a bolt, the drop adjusted if and as necessary and then the rope coiled so that the noose hung at the prisoner's head height, secured in place with a piece of thread. 
It was aligned with a T-mark that was chalked upon the trap doors where the toes of the condemned would be aligned, the arches of the feet just over where the trap doors met. The cotter pin that secured the lever was then eased out so that it was only just in place and would fall out easily with a mere nudge, saving a fraction of a second. At five minutes to eight, the official witnesses would have assembled and following a signal, Albert and his assistant would make their way to the condemned cell. The door would silently be opened and Albert would enter with the wrist strap in his right hand. After strapping the prisoner's wrists behind them, all assembled stepped through the cell side door and took seven paces to the drop, where the prisoner was positioned on the trapdoors at the chalk mark T. As the assistant strapped the prisoner's ankles, Albert would place the white hood over the head, pulled from his breast pocket as his uncle had, and secure it before placing the noose over the head. The metal eye through which the rope was looped was placed under the left jawbone, which, when the prisoner dropped, forced the head back and broke the spine. Stepping to the left, Albert would then pull the pin and push the lever, dropping the prisoner into eternity. Antonio Mancini reportedly said, Cheerio, as he dropped through the trap doors. He would hardly have had time to say anything else. From entering the condemned cell to opening the trap door, had taken a combined total of just 12 seconds. Albert Pierpoint was to become a master at his craft, and although it wasn't a practiced race, became so refined at it that he was the executioner at the fastest recorded hanging in Britain, when on the 8th of May 1951, 29-year-old James Inglis was hanged in just 7 seconds, from being removed from his cell to the trap doors opening. Yet not all of them were as smooth and swift as this. His second hanging as official executioner in December 1941 was also his most trying. Carol Richter was a Czech who tried to escape from German territory to reunite with his girlfriend and son in America, but was caught crossing the border and imprisoned. The Germans had offered him the option to commute his sentence through service as a spy, and he'd accepted. After some training, he'd been parachuted into England, with the task of checking on another spy that the Germans suspected had been turned. Unfortunately, his complete lack of tradecraft led to his swift arrest, and after a military trial, he was sentenced to death, with him vowing to die, I quote, as a man. When Pierpoint and the guards had entered the condemned man's cell in Wandsworth Prison for the hanging, Richter stood up, threw aside one of the guards and charged headfirst at the stone wall, momentarily stunning himself. After Richter further struggled with the guards, Pierpoint managed to get the leather strap around Richter's wrists, but he burst the leather strap from eye hole to eye hole and was free once again. After another struggle, eventually four guards overpowered him and the strap was tightly wrapped around his wrists. He was bodily carried to the scaffold where the strap was wrapped around his ankles, followed by the hood and noose placed on. But just as Pierpoint pushed the lever, however, Richter jumped up with bound feet and tried to leap clear of the trap doors, but failed. As Richter plummeted through the trap door, Pierpoint could see that the noose had slipped but it had become stuck under Richter's nose. 
Luckily for Albert, he'd worked out the length of rope perfectly and the jerk to Richter's head was enough to break his neck and kill him instantly, where despite the unusual positioning of the noose, the prison medical officer who examined him determined that it was an instantaneous, clean death. Writing about the execution in his memoirs, Pierpoint called it my toughest session on the scaffold during all my career as an executioner. The strap that Richter had broken was given to Pierpoint as a souvenir following this, and indeed, he used it occasionally for the rest of his career for what he considered meaningful executions. His dignified, methodical and meticulous approach impressed the authorities, and during the Second World War, Albert was called upon to hang 15 German spies as well as a number of US servicemen who'd been found guilty at court-martial of committing capital crimes in England. Perhaps it was this, his growing reliable reputation and the fact that he'd previously assisted his uncle at Shepton Mallet that led to him being chosen as a military executioner for the Allied armies following the Nuremberg trials. His uncle Tom would have been the logical choice. But by that time, he was 75 years old and had been effectively retired by the Home Office. So in December 1945, Albert flew out to Germany. The first trial at Nuremberg had been of those who had run the concentration camps at Auschwitz and Belsen, and out of 45 men and women who'd been put on trial, one was too sick to stand trial, 14 were acquitted and 18 were sentenced to terms in prison. One other was sentenced to prison, but also faced a civil trial for murder, for which he was ultimately convicted and executed by the German authorities. Eleven, however, were sentenced to death, along with another two who'd been convicted of murdering a captured RAF pilot. On the 13th of December 1945, given the honorary military rank of Lieutenant Colonel, Albert hanged them all, the women individually, then the men, two at a time. He also carried out the executions of others convicted of war crimes in various trials over the next four years, and by October 1949, he had executed 202 people on the continent, often over 10 a day, and on several occasions, groups of up to 17 over two days. Aside from being prolific on the continent, he was also keeping his hand in at home doing the same, and was executioner for, amongst many others, some of the most notable and celebrated hangings in British criminal history, pulling the lever on Neville Heath, the acid bath murderer John George Haig, William Joyce, better known as Lord Haw Haw, and the controversial executions of Derek Bentley and Timothy Evans. Throughout each, Pierpoint maintained his quiet professional stance, almost detached from any feeling or opinion concerning what he was doing, with pleas from victims or the sentence making little impact upon him. He was to explain years later, I don't take sides, I just go and do the job that I've been allotted to do. You mustn't get involved in whatever crime they've committed. The person has to die. You've got to treat them with as much respect and dignity as you can. They're walking into the unknown, and anyone who's walking into the unknown, well, I'll take my hat off to them. As long as I can give in the last moments of these people, whoever they are, whatever they've done, if I can give them the respect and dignity at the last moment, that's my job and I come away satisfied. In all my career I think I've only seen two who weren't that brave, 
and they were both spies, foreigners. But the British, the English, no trouble. Yet although he was a man of decorum and quiet poise, there was a quick and dry wit to Peter Point also, which I believe is highlighted most with his execution of Rillington Place serial killer John Reginald Halliday Christie. On July the 15th, 1953, Christie was about to be executed at Pentonville Prison, and immediately before he was to be hanged, Christie, his hands tied behind his back, complained that his nose itched. Albert leaned in and told him, Don't worry, it won't bother you for long. And for Christie, totally deserved that. If you're unfamiliar with the crimes of John Reginald Halliday Christie, then I recommend Mike over at Murder Mile because he does the definitive cover of them. It's an absolutely fascinating case and one that's well worthy of a listen. And I thought to myself, is this quip possibly the origin of the phrase gallows humour? Who knows, it's a good contender though, isn't it? Now putting people to death has to have some effect on you, you'd have thought, wouldn't you? It drove his father to drink, but not Albert Pierpoint. He managed to, in the most testing of circumstances, remain unbiased, clinical and professional to the very end. Even when in 1950, he had to hang a friend of his. As we said before, being a hangman paid the best part of bugger all, certainly wasn't enough to live off as an independent contractor. And for many years, Albert had, as we said, made his main living as a wholesale greengrocer. Following the war, having been paid handsomely for his work executing Nazi war criminals, he and his wife Annie, whom he'd not shared his sideline profession with until after they were married, only to find out that she'd long already known about it through local gossip, never ever underestimate that at all, in the late 1940s had taken over the running of a pub on Manchester Road in the Hollingwood area of Oldham, called Help the Poor Struggler. By all accounts it was a popular pub, crowded and well kept by the pier points, although many of the crowd were only there to rub a neck at the landlord, whose exploits had become well known and due to his executing of Nazi war criminals, had made him an almost popular folk hero of the time with many people desperate to have a pint pulled by the hand that had put Lord Haw-Haw or Haig to death. Yet he would never discuss his work and disliked any publicity, despite the crowds that would flock to the pub hoping to be regaled with tales from the scaffold, and he wouldn't tolerate macabre or lewd jokes about his sideline. One notable rumour is that there was a sign in the bar depicting the legend, No hanging about will be tolerated although this could just be urban legend and it would certainly go against the character of Pierpoint that's mostly documented. I'd well have that sign up in my bar if it had been me like. By all accounts Albert was a genial landlord, always friendly and sociable, though one that kept order and wasn't afraid to resort to devious means to do so. One account given from a close friend of his at the time tells how Albert didn't like the rowdiness when the younger clientele of the struggler got drunk and so had come up with a scheme. The drink of choice for the ladies back then was gin and tonic, and when Albert knew it would be busy, he'd put some gin in a tray and place the glasses upside down in the gin. He would then fill his gin bottles with tonic and put the gin back into other bottles, so giving to the illusion that one was getting what they asked for in an attempt to keep things peaceful in the pub. 
Yes, that was and still is an illegal practice. But who's going to hang him for it, eh? It was at this point where one of the regular faces to prop up the bar of the struggler was a man named James Henry Corbett, better known as Tish. The 37-year-old was a frequent visitor and well-known character there and was known to be friendly with Albert, who'd often join him singing duets to Danny Boy and other songs around the piano together, which was a fixture in post-war pubs and what I can only imagine to be a right do back in the day. The two were also known to call each other Tish and Tosh. Now, Corbett had been separated from his family, living away from his wife and 11-year-old son, but had taken up with a mistress, a woman by the name of Eliza Woods. In August 1950, Corbett and Eliza were staying in Room 7 at the Prince of Wales Hotel in Ashton-under-Lyne in Lancashire, and both were regular visitors to the Help the Poor Struggler pub, but theirs wasn't a relationship without problems. Corbett was a very jealous man, and the diary that he'd kept had over months spoken volumes of how he thought Eliza was being unfaithful to him with other men. On the 22nd of July, Corbett wrote within it of how he had contemplated murdering Eliza. On August the 20th, 1950, between 11.30pm and midnight in room 7, an enraged Corbett would put his thoughts into action and went on to throttle Eliza in the bed that they'd shared. He left a corpse unclothed under the duvet where she lay and fled the scene. The following morning, the hotel chambermaid would enter room 7, only to find what you could only imagine as being the most disturbing scene that she would have ever come across. 36-year-old Eliza was either placed or left in such a position that you'd almost think she was sleeping, with the bedclothes tucked tightly up to her neck. The only thing that would possibly make you think otherwise would be the word whore that was written in bold letters in ballpoint pen upon her forehead. Arrested, charged and brought to trial, Corbett subsequently pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity at the time, but prosecutor Mr Edward Wall QC read parts of Corbett's diary as part of the evidence, which he claimed to the court showed expressed malice. In the diary, Corbett had written things like, I nearly strangled her, and I'm just toying with her. Mr Edmund Rosen QC, who was defending Corbett, offered no evidence to the court and simply asked that they deliver an insane verdict, whilst Corbett simply blamed the troubles with his wife and drink for the situation that he was in. But presiding Mr Justice Linsky, in my opinion, hits the nail on the head with this remark from his summing up. The diary entry that had said, nearly strangled her, might reveal the sadist type of man who rejoiced in cruelty, but that did not mean that such a man was insane. On November the 6th, 1950, James Corbett was found guilty of the murder of Eliza Woods and was sentenced to death by hanging. Impassive as he watched the judge place the black cap upon his head to pronounce sentence of death. Now as a bit of an aside actually, the wearing of the black cap was governed by custom and judges were under no obligation to assume it. It was about a Tudor court dress and was black in colour because black is the traditional colour of death and mourning 
and was to signify that the judge is humble before God, who it was believed held the only real power over life and death. Here's another bit of even more useless trivia for you. When the British ruled over Ireland, the judicial black cap was known in Gaelic as the K-by, pronounced Kai-bosh. Thus a new word entered the English language, giving way to the phrase, putting the Kai-bosh on. Of course, the judge wasn't so much putting the Kai-bosh on his own head, as symbolically on the condemned man's. Now, since the permanent abolition of capital punishment in 1969, there's been no need for the cap to be worn, has there? But it is still carried by high court judges on the occasion when they're wearing full ceremonial dress. Legend. Sentenced to death, Corbett was sent to Manchester's notorious Strangeways prison, where he would await his execution in the condemned cell. Meanwhile, telling anyone who would listen that he knew the man that was going to legally kill him. On the day of his execution, November the 28th, 1950, the governor of Strangeways would say to Albert on him arriving at the prison that Corbett seemed more concerned that Albert would acknowledge their friendship than he did about the drop. But Albert would claim to him that he didn't know Corbett, that he didn't recognise neither the name or description from what he'd read in the papers. Until, that is, the night before the execution, when as custom, he looked in through the Judas hole at the prisoner and recognised him straight away as the man he'd often duetted with in his pub, whom he even had a friendly nickname for, Tish and Tosh, yeah? But he didn't know his real name. When the time came for Corbett to walk his final steps the following morning, with what must have been a strange, if not heavy, duty to carry out, Albert opened the door to the condemned cell and greeted his drinking buddy, Hello Tish, how are you? To which Corbett replied, Hello Tosh. He recalled in his memoirs years later. The man relaxed, then he breathed in so cheerfully as if he were greeting a bright morning, that he brought his shoulders forward and arms high in front of him, and if he'd wanted to make trouble, I should have needed two men on him. I gently took his arms in their flow and guided them behind his back and strapped them in an instant and said in his ear, Come on, Tish, old chap. He went lightly to the scaffold. I would say he ran. He was on the drop before I turned around and he lifted the noose with the crown of his head and tried to get his head inside it, so anxious to please, but of course it was wrong. I took off the noose, put on the cap and did the right things for the drop fell and the rope stayed still. I thought if any man had a deterrent to murder poised before him, it was this troubadour whom I called Tish. He was not only aware of the rope, he had the man who handled it beside him singing a duet. The deterrent did not work. The career of Britain's premier executioner came to an end in early January 1956, after he travelled from his home in Southport to Strangeways Prison in Manchester the night before the execution of child killer Thomas Bancroft, having paid for staff to cover the bar of the Rose and Crown in Southport, which he and his wife were running by that time, in his absence. He spent the afternoon in the prison making the necessary preparations, but that evening the prisoner was given a reprieve. Pierpoint subsequently left the prison, and because of heavy snow, stayed overnight in a local hotel before returning home the following morning. Two weeks later, he received from the instructing sheriff a cheque covering his travelling expenses, 
but not his execution fee. He wrote to the prison commissioners to point out that he'd received a full fee in other cases of reprieve and that he was out of pocket as he'd spent additional money in employing bar staff. The commissioners advised he speak to the instructing sheriff as it was his responsibility, not theirs. They also reminded him that his conditions of employment were that he was paid only for the execution, not in the case of a reprieve. The undersheriff then told him that as no execution had been carried out, he was entitled to no fee, though he was willing to give him £1 for his time, to which Albert was insulted and sticking to his guns, demanded the full £15, which is worth some 344 quid today. Shortly afterwards, he received a letter from the sheriff offering £4 as a compromise, but Bridges had by that time been burnt, and feeling that he had no backing from the Home Office, on the 23rd of February, he replied to the prison commissioners and informed them that he was resigning with immediate effect and requested that his name be taken from the list of executioners. He was 51 years old and by that time had performed his final execution. Now things may not have been so clear cut however. Shortly after this the Home Office did write to him asking him to reconsider his resignation, the only time that they ever did so for any hangman, but discovered that now retired he'd agreed to sell his story to the newspapers for sums rumoured to be around the £40,000 mark and believed the fuss over his fee was a mere pretext to do so. Prosecution was considered under the Official Secrets Act, but the Home Office instead simply pressured the newspapers in question to cease publication of the articles after the first few, and only a small number of articles ever found their way to print. As a result, Albert was still allowed to receive payment of an undisclosed sum perhaps a final gift from the government in recognition of his long service. Pierpoint never publicly revealed his exact reasons for resigning as chief executioner, but it was not, as has been rumoured, because he'd become opposed to capital punishment or revolted by the act of hanging. At no stage of his career was he to ever admit being troubled by his conscience, and the fact that he didn't actually believe in the death penalty, as he claimed later, had no bearing on his willingness to do his job. Nor, as another rumour suggested, was it a reaction to having to hang Ruth Ellis, another execution that had caused controversy. Pierpoint said in his memoirs, At the execution of Ruth Ellis, no untoward incident happened which in any way appalled me or anyone else, and the execution had no connection with my resignation seven months later. Nor did I leave the list, as one newspaper said, by being arbitrarily taken off it, to shut my mouth because I was about to reveal the last words of Ruth Ellis. She never spoke. Pierpoint had told the Royal Commission years before that, in the moments before execution, I think a woman is braver than a man. I have never seen a man braver than a woman. Neither was he, and this is contrary to widespread belief, Britain's last hangman either. After his sudden resignation, there were some 37 further executions before the abolition of the death penalty, with the last two carried out at exactly the same time in Liverpool and Manchester on the morning of August 13th, 1964, so that neither executioner could claim to have individually performed the final legal execution. 
Upon his retirement, Albert settled in Southport, and upon writing his autobiography in 1974, nine years after capital punishment was abolished, he admitted in print that he didn't believe capital punishment was a deterrent, claiming, There have been murders since the beginning of time, and we shall go on looking for deterrents until the end of time. If death were a deterrent, I might be expected to know. It is I who faced them last, young men and girls, working men, grandmothers. I've been amazed to see the courage with which they take that walk into the unknown. It did not deter them then, and it had not deterred them when they committed what they were convicted for. All the men and women whom I have faced at that final moment convince me that in what I have done, I have not prevented a single murder. By two years later, in an interview with BBC Radio Merseyside discussing his career and autobiography, Pierpoint was of the opinion, When I started writing that book, our country seemed pleasant and quiet. There was not a lot of crime, not like there is today. I'm now honestly on a balance and I don't know which way to think because it changes every day. I know I wrote that in the book and when I wrote that in the book I honestly believed it. But since then there's been a lot more crime than there was in my time and I just can't make my mind up. They talk about bringing it back for policemen but they never mention bringing it back for the murder of children. If they bring it back, fair enough, but bring it back for everyone. A murder is a murder. He added, I always respected the condemned man, respected his dignity too. I just accepted what I had to do. But I can tell you this, our method was the cleanest, quickest and most humane in the world. Albert Pierpoint died aged 87 on the 10th of July 1992 in the nursing home where he'd lived for the last four years of his life. Yet he's far from forgotten. He's been the subject of several biographies, a film of his life entitled Pierpoint and starring Timothy Spall was released in 2005, which is well worth a watch, I recall seeing it some years ago. And he's been portrayed over the years many times on screen, on stage and in works of literature. Bizarrely, after Albert's death in 1992, a death mask capturing every pore and wrinkle of his face was even made along with perfect plaster casts of his hands. These, alongside other Pierpoint memorabilia, including a silver watch chain worn by the hangmen in the family, the aforementioned broken wrist strap, Albert's diary in which he meticulously noted the characteristics of the 433 men and 17 women that he'd executed in his career, several documents, photographs and smaller items of memorabilia, first sold at Christie's Auctioneers to a private collector for an undisclosed amount in the same year. Now they've reportedly been auctioned several times since, and as late as last year, the Pierpoint collection fetched £20,000 at Bolden Auction Galleries in South Tyneside. Auctioneer Giles Hodges said of the collection, which again went to a private buyer who was described as being an eclectic collector, this is the most fascinating set of items I've ever sold. It was a real eye-opener when it came in, and I won't see anything like it again. It provides a remarkable insight into the role of the executioner, and I suppose someone had to do that job. We have a reputation for selling the weird and the wonderful, but we've never had anything like this before. 
when I look at the death mask and the hands, there is a certain fruition because you can see every detail, every wrinkle of the man's face. But it's the hands that are the most chilling. They're both workmanlike and delicate. And then you think of the grim task they performed so many times. This lot is a magnificent piece of social history and I hope the buyer will keep it in the public domain. I'm glad it's all being sold as one lot because if you'll pardon the pun, it would be criminal to break it up. And looking at it, it looks like some of the old shit that you'd find in the range. I mean, would you have it on your mantelpiece? Now you could probably make a series of the show about the life and works of Albert Pierpoint. So many notable hangings was he the executioner for. And it just so happens that an upcoming episode I have in the pipeline will feature an account of the case behind the final hanging he was to perform. So watch this space. I found this to be a fascinating, if macabre, subject to have read up on and I commend KD once again for a choice and research. I like unique spins on things such as this because it's always good to try something new here on the show and we don't really balk at the macabre here, do we though? Been going far too long and far too hairy for all that. KD has raised the point throughout this though. Whatever your stance on the death penalty, the hangman's often overlooked, isn't he? And how can putting so many to death not affect you in some way? Pierpoint almost seemed to see it as a higher calling for himself, a pure sideline that he became a master of, and yet he admitted that it didn't trouble him, he could remain neutral whilst doing it and afterwards. Regardless of the furor of executions such as that of a friend of his, James Corbett, or Ruth Ellis, or the controversy behind the executions of Timothy Evans, Derek Bentley, Pierpoint could perform his role efficiently and execute them without malice, without feeling almost, you'd believe, yet with compassion and dignity, as he described later. He must have been an incredibly disciplined man to have done so, mustn't he? Or, being the private person as he was, and his business being very firmly his business, did he really carry an enormous burden with him in private, one that he felt was his to carry alone? What do you guys think? I would love as ever to hear your thoughts and feedback concerning the episode Death in the Family, which you can do up in the thread on the Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links. You can even, if you're loaded and fancy doing so, jump in a bloody plane and skywrite me your thoughts. I'm always happy to hear from you. Now I shall be back myself in the writing chair the next time around. I don't know which tale exactly just yet, but I do have a couple in mind to choose from, so I better sod off now and get to it. I thank KD once again for his sterling work in bringing you the episode, as well as all of you folks for joining me here today. And all that remains is for me to say that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, Wishing you all good and safe times and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care guys and goodbye for now.